Asalaamu all, welcome to another episode of In Conversation, brought to you by Network Reorient, part of the Critical Muslim Studies Project. Now, I need to clarify something that I said last week. Last week, I said that uh, I found Uyghur food uh, that I had in Istanbul to be chillier than expected. <laughs> I need to clarify that I meant that as a compliment. I love my chili food, so that was very much a compliment rather than anything else. Um, so, okay. The episode you're about to hear was recorded in early October 2022 and since then there have been mounting political tensions in Pakistan which is the focus of today's uh, episode marked chiefly by the current government's redoubled uh, attempts to disqualify Imran Khan throughout general elections and harass dissidents um, which have all of these things have reached a new crescendo with the assassination of the renowned journalist Arshad Sharif in Kenya. Sharif had been a vocal critic of the government and the establishment of military and had actually fled Pakistan in the wake of dubious charges of sedition and death threats. He was involved in the production of an upcoming Netflix documentary called Behind Closed Doors, which uh, investigates international trails of corruption involving key personnel in Pakistan's ruling elite. Also, since recording, Imran Khan has announced the beginning of a long march to the capital uh, of Pakistan, Islamabad, on the 28th of October. This episode features Aisha Khan and Dr. Shela Khan in conversation with Dr. Sher Ali Terin, Associate Professor of Religious Studies, Department Chair of Religious Studies at Franklin Marshall College and author of the widely acclaimed volume Defending Muhammadan Modernity. Taking its cue from the political crisis that has erupted in Pakistan since the ouster of Prime Minister Imran Khan in April 2022, the episode you're about to hear traverses the various articles that Dr. Tareen published prior to and during Khan's tenure in government on the interface between what he terms Imranophobia, secular liberalism and Islamophobia. Let's listen in. Assalamu alaikum and hello to all our listeners. This is In Conversation, a podcast from Network Reorient, which is part of the Critical Muslim Studies Project. In this episode, Aisha Khan and I will be speaking to Dr. Sherali Tareen about his writings on Iranophobia, Islamophobia, and secular liberalism in Pakistan. But firstly, some introductions. So I'm Shehla Khan, and I'm an Associate Lecturer in International Relations, or IR, at the University of Derby. I'm mainly interested in de- critical decolonial IR, in particular discursive constructions of empire in the present day, the possibility of post-Western notions of statehood and sovereignty, and the incidence of Kamalism and Islamophobia in foreign policy discourses. Aisha, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you, Shehla. Um, Assalamu alaikum. Uh, I'm Aisha Khan, and I'm a PhD candidate in Global Studies Department of Shanghai University. Uh, currently, I'm working on China's Belt and Road Initiative in the context of uh, economic cooperation organization. Uh, moreover, I'm also focusing on Pakistan-China's bilateral relations, uh, China's relations with Central Asian countries, and the Muslim world as general. 
Uh, previously, I have also worked as a researcher at National Defense University, Islamabad. Thanks very much, Aisha. Dr. Tareem, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Yeah, sure, I'm Sher Ali. Um, I'm uh, originally from uh, Balochistan in Pakistan, district Pashin, um, a village called Alizai. Um, and I've been in the, the US now for some time. I teach uh, religious studies at uh, Franklin and Marshall College. And uh, I wrote a book called Defending Muhammad in Modernity that came out in 2020. Brilliant, thank you very much. So to get started, um, I should explain to our listeners that the subject of our conversation today stems from the political crisis that's been affecting Pakistan since the ouster of the former Prime Minister Imran Khan in April 2022, which has coincided with a steep economic downturn as well as with devastating floods that are covering over a third of the country. By way of some context, uh, in the general elections of 2018. His electoral campaign centered the creation of NEA or New Pakistan, which would be freed from the sway of dynastic politics, corruption, societal injustice, international dependency, and West toxification. For his critics, however, Khan was selected rather than elected since his poll success had been engineered by the military, and it paved the way for what was termed a hybrid civil military dispensation. Come April 22, and Khan is removed from power through a no, vote of no confidence carried by a 13-party parliamentary alliance, or the PDM, which involves parties of conflicting ideologies or ideological hues. Furthermore, in an apparent reversal of fortune, the military leadership is understood to have switched political sides following differences with Khan and instigated the anti-Imran parliamentary coup. Khan, however, has refused to wither away, accusing the opposition of complicity in a US brokered, in US brokered regime change, he has taken to the streets demanding fresh elections. His cross-country rallies have drawn mammoth, frequently record-breaking audiences. In turn, the new government of returning dynasts, 60% of the cabinet happens to be on bail, has responded to Khan's resurgent popularity through a combination of strong-arm police tactics including the arrest and torture of his chief advisor, the use of tear gas on protesters, media blackouts, and the filing of a laundry list of lawsuits against Khan. In Khan's reckoning, the government's conduct reflects his illegitimacy and unpopularity, and he has threatened nationwide mass mobilization if general elections are not announced soon. So while the public throngs to Khan's message of haqiqi azadi or genuine liberation, Pakistan's liberals and sections of the left have, with few exceptions, endorsed his ouster, turning a blind eye to the government's repression and abuse of state power. When they have spoken, it has often been to decry his burgeoning popularity as an instantiation of fascism, cult behavior, or false consciousness. Okay, so Dr. Tareen, um, to begin with, in 2017, several months before Khan was elected, uh, elected and became prime minister, you published an article entitled Liberal Fundamentalists and Imranophobia. Now, this coinage, if Imranophobia, combined with the taint of fundamentalism, have provoked the ire of Pakistan's self-styled enlightened vanguard, the liberals, who insist that their opposition to Khan is well-founded and he is, in their view, a fascist demagogue. In response to the pushback, could you please tell us what you mean, firstly, by Imranophobia, 
and also explain how you distinguish it from other instances of criticism or opposition to Khan, so that it remains a valid descriptor. Um, thank you, Assalamualaikum. Thank you so much, um, Shaila and Aisha, for this opportunity to speak on Reorient um, on a topic uh, a bit different from uh, the kind of topics I usually have uh, had opportunity yes. to talk about, but it's it's useful. I think it's connected in some uh, at least tenden- uh, tangential ways. Well, to answer your question, I think when I wrote that piece in 2017, I think I was um, dissatisfied with the kind of commentary on Imran and uh, ways in which it fell into two different kinds of caricature, right? It was either this intensely caricatured and um, uh, completely sensationalized uh, view of him um, that maybe took some things that he may have said here and there and constructed a picture of him uh, that I think missed some of the nuances of his positions, his uh, discourse, his politics, etc. And then on the other hand, of course, uh, an equally problematic kind of a, a way of um, uh, um, presenting him as some kind of a savior, absent of any ambiguities, contradictions, that also is dissatisfying. So my main interest was actually intellectual in that I wanted to present a view that is not so much a middle way, but more uh, one that explores some of the um, tensions and ambiguities, but also some of the productive aspects of his discourse positions and the nuances that were not coming through. Uh, primarily, my main inten- uh, intention in writing that piece was I was very dissatisfied with this moniker of Taliban Khan uh, that was mm, in circulation. Yeah. And uh, I did not really see uh, people who otherwise might be very opposed to the war on terror and you know the intimacy between uh, US imperialism and the Pakistani military's uh, violence uh, in, 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 in Pakistan. Um, uh, talk about this in relation to Imran in ways that were more nuanced than some kind of uh, embrace of militancy or some kind of embrace of religious radicalism, etc. And mm-hmm. sometimes subtle and sometimes very explicit Islamophobia or this kind of a discomfort of religious excess is what was driving this kind of a push to uh, frame him as some kind of a, uh, you know, uh, uh, born again uh, Muslim fundamentalist, which I think uh, is a very problematic framing and uh, misses some of the nuances of his own discourse. So the, one of the main posi- uh, in arguments I made in that piece was that if we look closely at his position, I think he has rather forcefully and rather eloquently and rather productively connected the intimacy between uh, US imperialism and the war on terror and the mushrooming of uh, violence uh, within, uh, within Pakistan. So in some ways, the way in which he connected the relationship between uh, power and violence and conditions and politics uh, is one that I found quite productive. And in terms of the political, quote unquote, mainstream, I think he was the most nuanced and the most articulate and the most uh, productive voice on that particular question. And I did not want that to get missed. Um, so, you know, this one commentator who writes, who used to write for Dawn and became kind of famous because of Dawn Leaks, etc. Cyril Almeida, I'm not sure he's not much of a thinker, but he had this kind of an article that got a lot of traction calling him Taliban Khan, et cetera. Um, so that kind of a shallow and um, you know, nauseatingly kind of uh, irritating kind of commentary, which was getting traction, I just wanted to uh, you know, uh, push back against that a bit. The second thing I wanted to make an argument for in that piece was, um, you know, one of the things that I do find very productive about Imran's uh, politics and discourse, uh, and there are many ambiguities and contradictions as well, uh, but one of the things I find productive is 
the way that he does not engage in the kind of dehumanization of the madrasas and its custodians, as we might find in some of the other liberal secular circles. Now, that doesn't mean that you glorify madrasas and its, you know, uh, scholars and students either. There are many problems associated with questions of gender, minorities, etc. So the point is not to glorify. Uh, but at least there is some kind of sensibility there, right? You cannot expect too much of a public figure and a politician. This is not a scholar we're talking about. But as a public figure, mm -hmm. as a athlete turned philanthropist turned politician slash public figure, I thought that his critique of the tripartite education system in terms of this division between an elite Western, uh, you know, yeah. system and then the kind of, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, kind of the Urdu medium public system and then the madrasa, this kind of a, a tripartite cleavage uh, and the psychological damage and effects that it has on society, I think was deeply productive. And I did find it quite appreciable the ways in which he had these, uh, you know, uh, 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 possibilities of uh, exchange between students from different kinds of institutions meeting with each other, et cetera. I, when his government came and this whole kind of policy of the, uh, revamping the education system, I thought the reactions that it got on many occasions were just purely, uh, you know, examples of secular fundamentalism. I mean, someone like Pervez Hoodboy, et cetera. These are uh, complete buffoons when it comes to these particular questions. Uh, but I did think that even someone like Imran and his government, even, even someone who was perhaps more sympathetic to the idea of, you know, taking these figures as human beings who have some nuance, et cetera, um, yeah. the madrasas, uh, even his government had this kind of a discourse, the modernist discourse that we need to have one education system so that these people from the madrasas can also learn things like science and you know, uh, yeah. uh, things that are useful to the modern world, et cetera. So, so he could not come out of his modernist trap in some ways, right? Why is the question not asked? Why is it always framed in the sense of uh, the madrasa students can now learn science? Why is it not asked uh, that students from, you know, elite institutions can go spend a week in madrasas and what they will learn there, what they will learn about, uh, you know, traditions of logic, traditions of philosophy, moral philosophy, law, et cetera. I think, I think many, uh, you know, um, uh, elite uh, students and scholars will really benefit a lot from spending a couple of weeks in the madrasas, uh, even if they might be very critical of things. I'm not glorifying. I'm not saying that we give a free pass to anything, right? So it does, it's not either or. Some nuance is what is needed here. So, but but still, at least there was some sensibility with Imran and and the, the, with the idea that uh, you know one can be critical of these colonial legacies of education, violence, etc. And there is some semblance of nuance. Basically, there is some semblance, there is some hints of decolonial nuance with their ambiguities, with their contradictions. But compared to the other mainstream political figures, the mm. difference is radical. And someone who does not recognize that difference being radical is either being biased or is not taking his discourse uh, seriously mm. or thoughtfully or carefully. That was my main position. And my main Last point I would say, Shell, on that question is, you know, I very carefully defined that category, uh, liberal fundamentalist. And there were three features that I gave, um, mm. if my memory serves me right. The first one was to take all, uh, you know, virtues of liberal secular, liberal secular democracy at its face value without wrestling with its contradictions and tensions. Two, considering religion as an obstacle to progress and religious excess as something which will always be detrimental to societal progress and can always escalate into violence. So this, this, this kind of a, a classic secular notion that religion, if not tamed and moderated, will always spill into violence. Um, um, and the third exact feature I'm, I'm forgetting right now, but those were the two main sort of characteristics of what I call liberal 
uh, 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 fundamentalist. Oh yeah, the third was the inability to connect uh, indigenous, uh, you know, manifestations of violence with the violence of American imperialism and British colonialism uh, prior to that. Uh, so I was very specific in terms of how I was describing that category. I did not mean the entire left. I am uh, very, very appreciative. Of course, I also would categorize myself as some kind of a, what we might call a critical, uh, you know, uh, uh, critical of secular power uh, and uh, looking at Islam and religion in more nuanced ways, uh, 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 trajectory of the left, if there was any such thing. Uh, so, so I'm not saying that, you know, I was painting the entire sort of quote unquote left with the same brush, not at all. Many of my friends are very, you know, close friends are from the left, etc. But uh, in this very specific way, I was describing that category, this kind of fundamentalist uh, embrace of liberal secular values and looking at religion as some kind of a uh, object, which if not tamed and moderated will always spill into excess and violence. That is, I think, the underlying assumption that animates some of these caricatured critiques of Imran. And that's what I was trying to highlight in the essay. Okay, excellent. I mean, there's, there's so much in there to unpack, but I'll, I'll just become one small point before um, Aisha comes in. And that is the, the point about, or the, the sort of, the diagnosis of violence uh, advanced by different groups within Pakistan. Because uh, you obviously, you know, you, you, you've said that Imran constructs a fairly a kind of multi-layered picture of violence and he, you know, he, he kind of, um, he adduces historical causes, contemporary causes, so on and so forth. And he adduces the United States and its imperial ventures. Now, liberals too have been highly preoccupied, I would say, with, with the question of violence. But in their reckoning, it's always a, a sort of a unidimensional picture. Violence erupts because the Pakistani state encourages militancy or backs militancy in its pursuit of strategic depth and so on and so forth. And because it does that, um, the violence of imperial actors then becomes justified in order to quell this violence. So, you know, it, so you, you, you can go ahead and you can have your wars on, of terror and you can have your, you know, drone bombings and you can have all your, the entire sort of paraphernalia or the, the entire infrastructure of rendition and, you know, so on and so forth, um, det arbitrary detention. Um, so I, I just wondered whether you'd like to comment on that at all, on the sort of the liberal, the, the liberal kind of conception of violence in Pakistan. Yeah, well, this is not only applicable to Pakistan, but in general, I think the underlying assumption here, and here, of course, I yeah, think the, work sure. of, the work of someone like Dalal Asad is so useful on suicide bombing, that classic text of his, where he mainly argued that this underlying liberal uh, assumption about the dichotomy between violence and politics, right? That on, if you have the liberal state this, uh, engage in violence that can have some kind of justification or that can have some kind of uh, uh, some kind of uh, uh, rational uh, logic behind it. But when violence emanates from quote unquote religious actors, that is the kind of violence that is that deserves to be quelled or that needs to be uh, moderated. Uh, so this underlying assumption of a dichotomy and a binary between politics on the one hand and violence on the other hand, so that when violence emanates from religiously marked actors, whether that is in Palestine or in Kashmir, that would be the kind of violence that would be seen as problematic. This is the underlying assumption, the problematic assumption, which does not recognize the intimacy between violence and liberal politics. And as Assad argues that violence is integral to the very founding of liberal politics in the West. So if, 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 um, 
you know, the body of a religious, quote-unquote, religious militant dies from a drone strike, that would be legitimate because that kind of violence is just an expression of legitimate politics. Whereas yeah. if the quote-unquote militant attacks a state uh, uh, machinery or some kind of a state you know, personnel, that would be illegitimate because the cause or the source or the motivation for that is quote-unquote religion. So mm -hmm. notice how underlying this bifurcation between violence and politics, between the this idea that you, know, uh, you can uh, trace religious motivations onto violence is in fact working on the secular assumption and principle that you can, in fact, separate a domain of life, a domain of motivations called, quote unquote, religion, that can yeah. then be separated yeah. from this other domain of life called secular politics. So mm. this is mm. the underlying bifurcation. This is the underlying mm. assumption, sometimes explicit, sometimes implicit, that mm. in some ways gives a free pass to horrendous projects of state uh, you know, imposed uh, violence that is oftentimes in collaboration with colonial power or uh, imperial power. Um, uh, uh, but is very, very flabbergasted when it comes to violence emanating from actors that are marked as religious. Now, the point is not to justify any kind of violence, but, and again, now I will connect it to Imran, I think another uh, essay that I uh, wrote um, some time ago, I've, I don't write opinion essays anymore, I don't get much traction, but I'm happy with what I wrote in the last five years, called uh, Imran Khan and Islamophobia. And I found his, yeah. his discourse uh, at one point at the OIC forum, I think that was 2019. Mm -hmm. And then and then also at the UN in his you know, sort of famous speech of 2020, uh, was it or 19, uh, 2019, uh, where he made that case that when you use the category of Islamic terrorism and you mm -hmm. attach it to actors in say Palestine and Kashmir, what you're really doing is you're delegitimizing legitimate forms of political struggle uh, and mm. struggles of self-determination by staining that uh, uh, struggle with the label of quote-unquote religious violence, mm. right? So the underlying assumption there is that there is such a thing as religion, a category called religion, and those mm. motivations are called religious, which can be traced back to actors, and then it can be attached to these actors in order to delegitimize their political struggles. Mm. Um, mm. So that move that he made, among other moves that he also made in that speech, I think was very useful in that he made the argument that, look, when the Tamil Tigers engaged in violence in Sri Lanka, you never mm. call it Hindu violence, rightly so. So yeah. although he did not articulate it in this way, but his underlying argument was that you cannot reduce this violence to a category called religion. That was the underlying sort of implication of his argument. And I found it very impressive for someone who's not a scholar, who's a public figure, to be making arguments which are really quite nuanced and in some ways quite Asadian. Now, don't accuse me of saying that, oh, I'm, you know, privileging Imran Khan as some kind of a nuanced anthropologist. That's not what I'm saying. But when you find these examples of nuance, when you find these traces of some kind of productive discourse, I think one needs to talk about it. Now, one can talk about ambiguities that, look, he does not talk about the repression of Muslims in China, etc. Fine. Uh, there are ambiguities. There are contradictions. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so uh, my point is never that, that there is this, that, that his discourse is free of ambiguities, contradictions, tensions, or his politics. But I do believe that there are some very productive and nuanced aspects of his discourse and arguments, which cannot be sidelined. And when compared to other mainstream political figures, these are radically more nuanced. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, his comparison is to figures who, uh, you know, whose politics begins and ends with, uh, you know, ridiculous um, banners like enlightened moderation, which he also has critiqued very forcefully, or uh, the grammatically problematic phrase, democracy is the best revenge, or motorways and highways, uh, or more recently, this dynastic, you know, uh, new generation uh, with someone like 
Bilawal, whose crowning achievement in life is the collision of parental chromosomes, and because of which he is now, you know, uh, becoming the foreign minister, and uh, because he fits nicely the template of a good liberal, you know, Muslim. figure mm-hmm. so this is just disgusting i mean these figures are absolutely disgusting right so let's be very uh, blunt about it so in comparison with these kinds of figures the kind of nuance we see on questions of religion politics etc coming from imran is refreshing and one does not have to drop one's you know guard of critique and intensely one should critique him for many things uh, as i have in my essays as well but these are important nuanced aspects of a certain hint of decolonial politics that one can also uh, you know reflect on at least if not if even if disagree with that's all my point absolutely i mean the the unproblematized understanding of religion in pakistan is is highly highly problematic let's say we say and um th- there isn't nearly enough awareness of the fact that religion itself is a is a category of the enlightenment that it's you know it, it's a, it's a highly eurocentric category uh, sorry category and it needs to be critiqued and it needs to be it needs to be you know problematized Uh, but but that but that's a topic for another day. I, I think Aisha uh, yeah, yeah. would like to jump yeah, yeah. in. I'll just say one very. I'll take <laughs> less than a minute in this last point that you made about. Sure. I, I do. I also believe and I, I observe and see that I think perhaps the one peculiarity of the Pakistani context is that the kind of distance between different quote unquote camps. Uh, you know, for heuristic purposes, I know things are much more nuanced and 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 flexible. But for heuristic purposes, if we call this kind of diehard liberal secular kind of convictions that religion is the main obstacle to any kind of progress in the world, and on the other hand, you know, uh, kind of unfair uh, caricatures and uh, uh, characterizations of people on the left who are, I think, engaging in some very important struggles when it comes to gender justice, when it comes to feminist yeah, struggles, sure. etc., against patriarchy, against state-sponsored violence, etc., which is completely caricatured them as you know sellouts to the West. I mean, there are spaces in between, but one of the reasons why this kind of polarization and bifurcation is so intense is precisely because the knowledge traditions of these two kind of um, traditions of knowledge don't really meet, um, mm. and that is something that I think you know there are you know quote unquote left and you know other kinds of tussles in other parts of the world in Muslim politics as well. But just from my observation, you know, seeing places like Tunisia, etc., there are these tussles, but because. um there is some kind of a basic literacy of the arabic mm. of the tradition etc mm. that there is still some kind of recognition of where the other might be coming from whereas mm. in the pakistani context the bifurcation and the polarization sometimes is so intense because mm. the knowledge traditions and the set of assumptions mm. that might be grounding the, the 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 kind of two universes have no mm. point of contact have no point of seeing okay i might disagree with you but this is this is the tradition that you might be coming from so there is very mm. little space for any kind of critique and and an engagement and disagreement and it mm. results in these kinds of caricatured uh, representations mm. which might be good fodder for social media but does not really carry uh, the task of knowledge and nuance much further anyways with that i'll turn to aisha yeah. Right. Sure, uh, Dr. Jain. Following on from this this point, uh, we might also observe that you know the liberal left critics of the Imranophobia, uh, they also uh, dismiss or we can say downplay the incidence of you know this this global Islamophobia or or what is often uh, termed the Islamophobia industry. You know, so which features um, a recognizable list of state and non-state actors. and relatedly uh, they dispute that islamophobia could even exist in a muslim majority state like pakistan 
what are the ways um, in which Imranophobia overlaps with Islamophobia, at least in the Pakistani context? And to what extent does Imranophobia uh, represent a form of uh, native Islamophobia? Yeah, I think there's tremendous overlap. I mean, the case of Imran is quite interesting. This is this is a thoroughly modernist figure, first of all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is an expression of a certain kind of a modernist Islam. So as a student of Islam, what I find interesting about him as an object of analysis is that there is a, an interesting articulation of a modernist Islam uh, that is calling for some kind of a confluence, some kind of a marriage between socioeconomic principles of a Scandinavian sort of republic um, uh, on the one hand, and then also drawing on some abstract principles of justice and the treatment of minorities, et cetera, from the model of Medina on the other hand. So Mm -hmm. he's charting some kind of a genealogy of justice and hospitality towards the other that does not pass through Europe, but that is also not completely uh, inimical Mm -hmm. uh, to Europe either. so trying to come up with some kind of a marriage between an Islamic notion of justice and hospitality uh, that is uh, yet thoroughly uh, uh, modern. Um, so he is an interesting figure in that way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think much of the discomfort that he generates also has to do with this quote-unquote born-again story in that, you know, someone who sort of looks like us, should act like us, has been, you know, was educated in uh, England, etc., you know, went to elite institutions, etc., should be a textbook liberal secular, but is not quite. Now, in many ways, he does act like a perfect liberal, by the way, uh, in terms of his economic policies, which one can be critical about in many ways. Uh, His environment, his his focus on the environment is very laudable, but as, you know, scholars who know more about this than me have shown that there are certain neoliberal assumptions underlying his push for the environment, which are problematic. So he's a textbook liberal in many ways as well. Uh, There is no question about that. Um, and not very uh, comfortable with Islamic sources of knowledge as much as he sometimes dabbles with Iqbal. And so I have to give him credit, I mean, for a, for a, you know, for a politician to bring up Ibn Khaldun, Shah Waliullah, Rumi, Iqbal, etc. Not always in very crude ways either, I think, in decently, you know, uh, sophisticated ways. Nothing scholarly, but decently sophisticated. It's, it's quite good. I think for a politician, uh, that's, that's quite good. Um, but I think there is a, this kind of discomfort about, you know, the internal other uh, who should be sort of a, a textbook liberal secular, but is not. And there again, I think one of the one of the one of the really problematic things which are not critiqued by people on the left as much as it should be, and it's purely Islamophobic in terms of representations of Imran Khan, is this whole story of the born again uh, Muslim, right? This kind of quote unquote the playboy who became the Muslim. Uh, mm. fundamentalist. This is a really problematic narrative. Now, there is no question, of course, that he, de- he did date women and, and etc. And, you know, he was a very uh, popular uh, athlete in his, in his day. But if you actually read his book, uh, the, 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 the Pakistan, A Personal Story, in that book, there is a very interesting chapter in which he talks about his turn to Islam. And the most interesting thing about that chapter in which he talks about how he turned to Islam, before he met his Sufi uh, peer and, and so on, who, uh, uh, you know, brought him closer to Islam, etc. He actually says that the beginnings of his uh, conversion to, uh, you know, a more conscious form of Islam was cricket, in fact, and observing on the cricket field, the contingencies of sport, you know, why would some deliveries get you wickets and not others? Why would some balls go over the rope and not others? Mm. So the contingencies of cricket, the tragedies and contingencies of cricket is what made him think about the higher power and mm. brought him towards 
you know, Islam, which I found a fascinating moment. As someone who's really interested in both Islam and cricket, I think that was a really interesting moment. And then, of course, when he was uh, fundraising for his hospital, how people would, you know, give uh, and, 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 and charity as an act of piety and how that inspired him, etc. So there are all these nuanced moments when you actually read him, you actually, uh, you know, with his speeches, etc., that show him to be a much more nuanced figure than this kind of a playboy turned Muslim fundamentalist. Now, the reason why the British press came up with this whole category of the playboy, and this is again the Islamophobic aspect that many even well-learned people on the left don't pick up on, is that in the 1980s and 70s, etc., he was really troubling the English batsmen with his in-swing, with his in-swingers and with his, you know, with his bowling. So here he was, a brown man, uh, you know, toppling the English cricket team time and again with his fast bowling at their own sport. And in order to delegitimize, in order to, in some ways, um, undermine the skill of this brown man, they came up with this whole playboy narrative, etc. That he's really not. so really undermining the seriousness of him as an athlete and as a professional. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this very narrative then gets picked up. If you see the, the very first sixty minutes from Australia, that segment that is done on Imran, there is a segment in which you know he's sort of swimming in the beach, and then he comes out and says. So this is one Imran who is, you know, at home in the West and he swims in the beach. And then there is another Imran who in Lahore is now praying. So, and then you ask them a question. So how do you do both of these things that you also pray and then you also swim in the beach? Uh, And and he, poor guy, you know, is always quite patient with these kinds of ridiculous questions. So as if, you know, there is this kind of a bifurcation between the moderate Muslim and the extremist Muslim. And it's Mm. the, you know, the the moderate or the flamboyant Muslim is the one who can swim, swim, in beaches and otherwise you have this kind of pious Muslim. So these, these mm. binaries, these secular orientalist binaries, which have been applied on him time and again for the last 40 years and which were mm. in most uh, strident supply right after the 2018 elections. And I wrote this piece called Dear American Media, how not to talk about Muslims, where it was this, you know, New York Times, Washington Post that, oh, playboy turned uh, fundamentalist has now become Pakistan's prime minister, etc. These were mm. deeply orientalist, secularist, uh, fundamentalist representations which were intellectually coarse, politically pernicious, and deeply Islamophobic. But I didn't really see many voices, uh, you know, speaking against that. Uh, and that's basically as much as you could be critical of him and his politics and his less than uh, enthusiastic critique of the deep state, for example, when he was in power, all these things are worthy of critique, intense critique. But this is how I think Imranophobia and Islamophobia come together. And this underlying subtle layers of secular assumptions that unless religion is not properly tamed, it will go out into the public sphere and cause havoc. This underlying subtle uh, secular assumption that sometimes is explicit but oftentimes very implicit is what you see in either the commentaries and caricatures about him or the kind of silence when when there is absolute explicit Islamophobia which is driving some of these kinds of caricatures and narratives. Yeah, I mean, uh, for sure, this is really, really interesting. So um, th- those those binaries are very rigid, and, and and as you say, this this idea that religion, unless it's contained, confined to the private sphere, it is a force for you know force for ill, mm-hmm. um, and that gets played out again and again, and you know, in so many registers, one after another, uh, and it, it's still very you know it's still there. Twenty years after the war on terror, that binary hasn't gone away, despite the, the destruction that's taken place, the chaos, you know, the misery. It's still there. It it it, it resurfaces at the slightest, uh, you know, incitement or provocation. But if, if we just just kind of carry on with this, so so you've mentioned this this overlap or the, the traction between Iranophobia and Islamophobia, 
And um, you've also sort of, you know, implied that or, or stated that liberals are the connective between these two domains or these, these two categories. Um, at the same time, however, I, I suppose one could point out that liberals will also align not only with suspect secular forces like authoritarian militaries, but also, more importantly, with certain types of self-identifying Islamist parties. For example, in Egypt, you have the example of the, the Salafis, who are seen as you know, pro-Sisi. Right. Now, in, in, in the context of Pakistan, um, this, this sort of 13-party rainbow alliance uh, contains you know, all, all kinds of parties, including the, the you know, very kind of ostensibly reactionary, or the very overtly reactionary, I should say, JUIF, the Jamiat Ulama in Pakistan. In fact, the, the party has recently come out in strong opposition to the transgender law that Khan's government passed in 2018. And they've come out, you know, quite forcefully against it, saying that it should be repealed, it's against the Sharia, and so on and so forth. Now, that bill, the 2018 bill, which is a progressive piece of legis legislation, I think, by any yardstick, um, it did little to dent the Liberals' opposition to Khan, and at present the JUI's uh, inclusion in this in, in the PDM has done little to dent their support for the PDM. So, are liberal standpoints better described as ideological or transactional? And how do their allegiances to authoritarian or so-called religious forces complicate the simple binaries that we just mentioned? The simple binaries of religious, secular, progressive, and regressive—you um, know—that that liberals themselves um, rely on and, in fact, thrive on. Um, um, so, are, are we to sort of conclude that that we're now witnessing the point where liberals will collapse under the weight of their own contradictions? Mm -hmm. I think it is helpful at this point. I think if we are going to uh, categorize a certain segment of people as you know, what I call liberal fundamentalist, et cetera, uh, to, to uh, specify what that category is. And again, to rehearse, what I mean with that category is something very specific, which is yeah. the underlying secular assumption that hmm. religion, if not moderated, will lead to excess and violence, mm -hmm. the inability to wrestle with the contradictions and tensions of liberal secular democracy, and the inability hmm. to connect the violence uh, you know, in indigenous contexts like Pakistan with uh, U.S. imperial power and British colonial power. Um, so the reason I want to say that is because there are, you know, people, quote unquote, on the left, where critiques of Imran are actually quite legitimate in that yeah, the yeah. absence of much of a, a critique of the deep state uh, while he was in power um, mm. One could. I, I don't. I don't agree with the idea that in 2018 he was some kind of unpopular leader who was brought into power just by the military. I think things are much more nuanced than that. I'm, again, there can be these two extremes, right? On the one hand, you know, he was unpopular and he only came into power because of the military. The other extreme yeah. that the military has nothing to do with it. I think some, the truth is somewhere mm. in the middle, right? In that there was a lot of popular uh, support. Uh, but in some constituencies, maybe there was, you know, some kind of help that he got. It's much more complicated than these kind of polar uh, opposite positions. Yeah. I also come to this, to this conversation and sort of a more personal thing as a as as a Patan, uh, and you know, uh, fine, I'm in the diaspora, but I go in the same summer and winter holidays that any other person would go and spend time with people in my village, etc., in Balochistan. Yeah. 
things are much more complicated, even among the Pathans, for example. You know, when people, one of the big mistakes that, you know, many well-intentioned even, many well-intentioned people on the left in places like Karachi, Lahore make, um, is that they look at everything from the prison of the military, which is an important prison, by the way. Make no mistake, you know, I'm from an upper middle class uh, uh, child of a medical doctor who had to confront, uh, who led the main, uh, uh, was the principal of the main medical college in, in Quetta, uh, my late father. Uh, so we and, and lived in a city with the contonment and all that. We've done all those things, of, yeah. you know. Uh, and I don't want to self, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of subordinate myself whatsoever. But uh, you know, we've seen the military in our everyday life plentifully. I'm not saying mm. that one should undermine the importance or significance and the kind of violence of the military at all. Mm. But 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 you know, the logics of political support and solidarity tend to be much more nuanced than that. So currently among Pashtuns, for example, among Pathans in Balochistan, whom I talk to, etc., on a regular basis, you know, many of them are with JUIF, many of them with the older parties of Achaks, etc., but many, many new people who have been, uh, you know, disenchanted with the former nationalists of the ANP have joined PTI for many different mm. reasons. Uh, some yeah. of that is this kind of a modernist Islam, uh, which is seen as quite appealing to the new professional class. Some of this is a disgust for the dynastic politics. Some of that mm. is actually... Uh, you know, support for measures of healthcare, etc. So, you know, when we look at everything from a pro versus anti-military standpoint, especially when it comes to minority communities like Pathans, we are in fact mm -hmm. privileging the military as the only sort of, uh, uh, as the only driver of politics, whereas political imaginaries, political logics of support, solidarity tend to be much, much more complicated than that. Um, mm -hmm. So anyways, with that point said, with that point said, coming back to your main uh, uh, um, question, uh, about the kind of overlap. Um, yes, I think, um, uh, shall I remind me, I, I went to a digression. There was a very important question that you actually asked at the end, uh, specific, uh, um, I do want to answer that question and not just go on. Yeah, I, I, was, I was saying that liberals sort of strike these alliances. I mean, that their alliances ah, with right, secular right. militaries right, are right, right. I, I remember, I remember now, yes, right. Okay. Um, well, I think what one can say to that is that you, um, um, uh, cannot be against the military and be for war, right? If you want to have a uh, ethical position of being anti-military, then you will have to be anti-war and anti-violence, right? So you cannot say that, you know, I'm anti-military in the deep state and it's, uh, uh, you know, interventions in politics, but I'm uh, fine with drone strikes because they root out yeah. militants. Mm. That's just an eth ethically impoverished position, uh, which makes no sense. And there is a, a tremendous degree of uh, political, uh, you know, instrumentalism and convenience when it comes to these kinds of uh, things. As you correctly said, in this alliance, there is very little ideological coherence. Um, uh, and these are very mediocre people. I, I, you know, I from what I've seen and I've given them, you know, I, I listen to their speeches, their discourse, etc. They don't come across as very impressive people to me. <laughs> the people of this, you know, this this thirteen party coalition that. It oscillates mm. between rabid, uh, you know, uh, 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 hate for uh, particular minorities to this kind of uh, best toxified liberal model of being the good Muslim who would be palatable to US think tanks, that would be the PPP, mm. never mm. mind the egregious conditions that exist in Sindh, uh, 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 mm. never mind, um, um, mm. and, or to this kind of a uh, you know, uh, discourse of developmentalist discourse of, you know, you build highways and motorways and everything will be great. Mm. And this kind of insidious mm. uh, 
back dealing and uh, and some of these figures of course are also in the pti there is no question about that the real politique is there and this is the underlying contradiction of pakistani politics that the historian david gilmartin talked about in very important ways in his classic book mm. empire in islam where he talked about you know even in the founding of pakistan the kind of elections uh, before independence where the whole cry was that what is the meaning of pakistan there is no god but god so this kind of an abstract notion of muslim unity this idea that Uh, you know, uh, a, a notion of Islamic sovereignty that would transcend all differences, all hierarchies, etc. But when the actual elections came, uh, most of the voting took place on the basis of, uh, uh, you know, clans and this whole uh, beradri system uh, of, you know, uh, kin, uh, kinship, kinship and clans, etc. So that was the main contradiction between abstract notions of Muslim equality and transcending differences. But when it comes to real politics, those are the very differences that. make it possible for you to come into power and that contradiction haunts the PTI and Imran Khan in very profound and cutting ways there is no question about that uh, but yes you are absolutely right that this is in many cases a politics of convenience uh, that when it's convenient uh, you know to turn against Imran uh, then any kind of ideological incoherence is seems to be okay uh, so i th- i think there is intense uh, mediocrity that i see and not only mediocrity but much much worse than that in terms of corruption and moral financial and otherwise uh, in terms of the other uh, political figures and parties i i i i hold the position that yes there are many contradictions tensions problems with imran uh, but he is radically different from the rest uh, and that's my position and i want to state it very clearly he's radically different if you don't see the radical difference fine that would be our disagreement but i think if you listen closely to his uh, uh, speeches if you read his work etc if you follow his trajectory uh, which i have mm. very closely over the last 30 uh, you know 9 years um uh, there is a lot of nuance and interesting things happening there um but that's my position yeah i i mean the the sad thing is that there hasn't been greater critique of this mediocrity that that you allude to in in the you know at least in the anglophone press mm. um, even dawn which it which sees itself as quite a sort of you know uh, quite an elitist um newspaper which occupies the moral high ground there's been very little or very insufficient criticism of I mean, even democracy now i think their 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 coverage yeah. of the vote of no confidence is horrendous and there you see the kind of limits of the american yeah. sort of left as well that they were not able to see the local dynamics that to, uh, mm-hmm. that were at play there uh mm-hmm. they were uh, you know privileging these pdm actors as some kind of uh, you know vanguards of democracy that was ridiculous that was absolutely ridiculous and that is my yeah. position that you can be very critical of imran and this whole thing absolutely. about the middle class being some kind of in some kind of a you know having had the the imrano cocaine right the kind of middle class has mm-hmm. had imrano cocaine and hence you know you have the differently able the children women etc coming in thousands and thousands and thousands but they are in some kind of a spell of some kind yeah. of charismatic spell yeah. and they don't know what yeah. uh, is good mm. for their future but yeah. some kind of you know elite leftists would know exactly that you know these are the middle class that in some ways need therapy now now i'm not yeah. saying i'm not saying that the middle class cannot be an engine of violent forms of politics and i'm not saying that all followers of pti are not you know are uh, salutary figures either uh, but there is sure. something happening sure. there is something happening here mm. which is rising against in uh, in a, a a notion that Uh, uh, that whatever decisions are made about us are made elsewhere, right? So there is this kind of a yearning mm. for sovereign power. I mean, as a student mm. of sovereignty, what I find interesting in this whole movement of popular sovereignty is that Imran has basically become a synecdoche for some notion of sovereignty, right? Mm. Uh, and it might be it might be an illusory synecdoche, that's for sure. 
But there is something very interesting happening here about the kind of aspiration for sovereignty, which is being invested in its figure. And I don't think that can be so easily dismissed as some kind of a middle class, uh, you know, illusory uh, hallucination. There's something much more interesting and complicated happening there. And secondly, even if you hold that position, to, to not see the difference between the kind of politics and discourse that he's articulating and that, that which is coming from these other uh, fulsomely problematic characters, fulsome in both senses of the English word, uh, that is something I, I, I don't understand. That. that is something that is beyond my comprehension. But that's, mm. I think, the depths of some sort of uh, secular attachments uh, that, yeah. that we find pervading different sectors of uh, society, including academia. No, mm, oh, for sure. For sure. So I'll have to, we'll have to, can we uh, go to a different uh, appointment here? Um, but thank you so much, Aisha and Shaila, for this conversation. Sure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks This is an episode of In Conversation, brought to you by Network Reorient, the podcast wing of the Critical Muslim Studies Project. Your host has been Hizamir, and the episode has been sound engineered by Zubair Vakil. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes, and please leave a like and a rating.